Now, I think the big debate here should have been around Dublin Kerry. The dubs were obviously absolutely frightening at the weekend, but I just think the manner in which Kerry won, the aggression they brought to the table, kept them in the first place. Subscribe to the OTBGAA podcast feed wherever you get your podcasts. Off the ball, daily. Welcome back to Off the Ball Saturday here on News Talk. John Duggan with you through until five. Now, this week's Saturday panel is in partnership with Electrosal, an effective three in one oral hydration solution. Feel hydrated and stay recharged with Electrosal, food supplement not to be used as a substitute for a balanced diet. Always read the label. We're going to focus on the sport of cycling now over the next hour with Irish cyclists Eddie Dunbar, who finished seventh at this year's Giro d'Italia, two time Tour de France stage winner Dan Martin an Irish cycling writer, Shane Stokes, who regularly pens articles for the Irish Times. Eddie, Dan and Shane, you're very good to speak to Off the Ball. How are you going? Good, thanks. Yeah, all good. Yeah. And uh, we're going to start with you, Eddie. You're in Andorra, I believe. Um, you're preparing for the Tour of Spain. Yes, I've been up here for the last 12 days, I think it is. Um, just basically doing an altitude camp before the next part of the season. Um, yeah, building up towards the Tour of Poland on the 29th of July and then the big one, the Vuelta on the 26th of August. So, yeah, been up here for 12 days. Going to spend another eight days here and, yeah, hopefully pick up some good condition going into the next few races. You finished seventh at the Giro d'Italia, the best uh, Grand Tour finish of your career. So how did you make the breakthrough, Eddie, as it were? How did it all come about for you that you did so well this year? Um, it was a bit unknown, really, going into the Giro. Um, I had a fairly bad start to the season, breaking my hand. Um, that put me out of action for about two months. Um, so, yeah, it was it was fairly unknown going into May, um, into the Giro. Like, basically, with not too much racing. But, yeah, I, I trained hard still. I was doing twice a day in the turbo for three or four weeks, um, sleeping in an altitude tent. So, I think in terms of ticking all the boxes going in, to the Giro we did that well um, and I think we've seen we've seen yeah good results at the end of it uh, still plenty to improve on I think but um, yeah plenty of positives to take away from that How much of a buzz was it for you Eddie? Um, no it was good uh, like I think every over the three weeks every day I was getting better obviously I was moving up to GC and then that last um, that last three days um, I actually got sick which wasn't um, wasn't in the plan so I was just um yeah, I think everyone else was like obviously happy I was finishing the top 10. But when you're coming fourth in a grand tour like that, um, you want to stay there and just to kind of fade a little bit. Um, at the back end of a race, it was fairly disappointing. Um, but looking back at it now, there was a lot more positives to take away from it than negatives. So, um, yeah, just work on them negatives and bring it into the Vuelta and see where we end up there. So what does a training camp in Andorra entail at the moment? What's the day-to-day like for you? Yeah, so we're up in a hotel, um, two two thousand four hundred meters in Peak Maya. Um, yeah, so basically here for three weeks more or less, and yeah, the first three days were pretty easy, just adjusting to altitude. I've never done a a proper altitude camp before, so this is the first time, uh, my first experience at it, you could say. So it's just kind of taking a laid back approach to it, um, uh, really trying to get the benefit out of it rather than pushing the limits too much. But yeah, literally two day blocks normally you have like a, a hard effort day one day then a long ride six hours the day after then a rest day so it'll just go like that for three weeks basically so um yeah pl- plenty of work uh, being done and yeah hopefully it'll pay dividends come come august 
Dan, are you still on the bike at all, or recreationally or anything? Yeah, of course, in time on time. Uh, obviously, last week I was at the Tour de France for twelve for the first nine days of the race, so it was twelve day trip. So not much time to ride there. But um, yeah, I'm also in Andorra, so didn't realize Eddie was here. So we'll have to uh, try and head out <laughs> yeah. on the bike too. And it, maybe only on the easy days though. There's not much, uh, not many six hour rides for me these days. Very good, very good. Uh, you get some uh, coaching there from um, Dan Eddie. Um, Dan, what 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 do you miss and what do you not miss about the Tour de France, given it's ongoing at the moment? Obviously, it's a it's an inc- incredible buzz to be at the race at any pro bike race, you know. But it's it's also I understand what it takes to get to the start line now. And as I, Eddie's explaining, the the sacrifices a professional cyclist makes these days is uh it's so much more intense than it was ten years ago. I mean, I personally never did an altitude training camp, you know, so I did one in 2014. And, um, yeah, it it just wasn't as enforced back then. We were left to our own devices a lot more. And the the sport has just become incredibly a lot more professional these days. So, uh, yeah, with a young family, it just became not sustainable for me to make those sacrifices. And also, yeah, it was... uh, yeah, obviously, I don't miss all the sacrifices. I miss the good, the good days when you feel great on the bike and you're in the front of the race, being successful. But the hard times that you have to go through to to get to that point, yeah, I definitely, uh, definitely not really missing those point, those bits. Yeah, sure. Uh, Shane, we have a strange situation this year. We've no Irish involvement I mean, for so many years. You had Dan and Nicholas Roach involved in the tour, and for whatever reason, Sam Bennett, Ben Healy, um, Eddie are not involved. It's just the way the cookie crumbles. Um, are we expecting, obviously, Eddie will be there next year and hopefully Ben? Yeah, I, I would imagine, I mean, Eddie, Eddie <laughs> would be able to tell us, but I'd imagine Eddie next year will be, uh, the tour will be the the logical um, step. Um, he's doing two grand tours this year for the first time. He's only, he's only done one grand tour before this, so I think there should be a, a big um, physiological benefit from having those two grand tours and also, you know, having this leadership role as well. So I think that's, that points to good things for next year and the Tour de France is the next logical step up. Uh, ben Healy's only 22 so he was always going to just do one Grand Tour in a year and um, even the most seasoned of guys to do the Giro and the Tour in the same year is very, very draining. So uh, the team wisely put him into the Giro d'Italia as his first Grand Tour to, I suppose, to get used to things and he won a stage there um, so he's obviously got a lot of ability and you know, his team hasn't had a fantastic Tour de France and, and Ben Healy starting at the start of the Tour was the highest, um, the rider with the highest points of that team, uh, which just shows his quality. So I would imagine he should be in the Tour next year. Um, but Sam Bennett, I think, definitely should be, should have been in the Tour. Uh, he's a bit mystified as to as to why he isn't in the race. Um and the team did that before. They kind of didn't show faith in him. And he actually left the team because of that in, at the end of 2019 and went off in 2020, won two stages in the in the tour in the green jersey. So uh, I suppose there's a history there of, of Bora Hansgrohe and not necessarily uh, giving him the starts that he deserves. Uh, yeah, so I think on, on if he was on other teams, he probably would have been in the tour squad. Uh, but for whatever reason, this year, they decided to go with other riders and... Um, they haven't been having a stellar tour so far, so they might regret the decision. So, Eddie, what is your thinking around uh, your year? And is it just a case of getting the experience at the, at the top level in these tours and Italy and Spain to gear yourself for France next year? Yeah, I think the main thing this year was just kind of get as much exposure to world tour racing as possible. 
um the last four years um yeah i i did a bit of racing but not at that level and i think i'm a i'm a bit behind the other guys um my age i think they're like a lot of guys that are 26 27 they've they have four or five grand tours in their legs and yeah i'm at the stage i only, I only have two so that makes a big difference to, to your body how you can race um how you absorb racing how you can train after so yeah i've a bit of catching up to do and i think this year we've made some good steps obviously getting um basque in the legs from indeed then the giro and then we've tour poland and the vuelta so that's really that's the highest level racing you can get really so i think that's going to set me up very well for next year and yeah i think yeah the tour is probably a big goal of mine next year um i'd like to get there and do everything i can to get there and at a hundred percent and see what happens. Um, but yeah, as I said, the the next step in my head is just get through the Volta, see see how that goes, and see what we need to improve on after that, and then start start worrying about the tour next year. It sounds like it's a, a lot about reps, Dan Martin. I mean, how do you adapt your body to all the kind of challenges that are required in a Tour de France, for example, the climbing, the sprinting, the time trials? Oh, yeah, obviously it's uh. As Eddie said, it just comes from those year on years of, of consistent training. And with every grand tour you do, you do te- tend to get stronger. And it's just that experience. But it's also having the confidence to be able to understand how deep you can go day to day, how much effort you can put in and still be able to recover. I mean, that's I always said that the first Tour de France for me was the most difficult because you kind of just want to get to Paris. You, you, you're a bit intimidated by the race and that challenge of this this huge event just this huge achievement of just being able to finish the race whereas then once you know and understand that you can finish it then suddenly you're willing to go deeper and deeper every day put yourself more in a hole and because you know that your body's going to have the ability to recover and then go again the next day so yeah i'm yeah obviously with in eddie's case especially every year he's going to get stronger the next few years and i mean the fact is the giro i always saw as physically the harder race it's the mental stress that of the tour de france and the concentration levels required that are, are more challenging and yeah obviously the all the best riders in the world you want to be at the tour de france and the speed is definitely higher but the fact that obviously the the giro physically is the the terrain is gen, genuinely more challenging and it's just a harder race to get through especially with the like bad weather conditions that you generally experience at the giro d'italia as well Whereas the uh, the Tour de France is a lot more, you just have to be a lot more concentrated and focused on a day to day level, and also the level of scrutiny that you put under at the Tour de France. Every little move you make, every little position that you wherever you ride at the peloton, everybody's analysing everything, and it's that it's coping with that level of that what you need the all the things that surround the race. It's just so much bigger. So and it's just how you get a, get your head around that the first time you 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 take part. Yeah, I was reading your book last night, Dan, and uh, breakaways is something that you you definitely were known for at certain times. You, you were the the top combatant, if that's the way way to describe it, in one of the years, I think twenty eighteen. So for something like that, I mean, is that a really exciting thing to be involved in when you're Tour de France when you decide I'm going to go for this now on the stage and and test everybody else. Yeah, of course, and it, it, that's also about sticking your neck out and and putting taking a risk you know and because a lot of times the breakaway doesn't pay off so it's 
but that's also about just enjoying the race and enjoying the the ride and but yeah for sure i mean being being out front in the in the biggest race in the world and being able to be aggressive and make attacks it's uh it was always a great buzz and when there's so many fans lying on the side of the road and you get so much attention at the finish line just for being even even now people come up to me and say they admire the way I raced and that's that's always incredibly humbling and it's um because obviously I wasn't the way I was attacking it wasn't about that it was about trying to win the bike race so <laughs> when you uh when people think you don't take it as though you were very entertaining as a rider I mean obviously that's uh that, that's an incredible compliment but yeah I mean there's any any pro bike race being at the front being able to get results and and have that satisfaction afterwards it just drives you on further and that's obviously eddie's result in the giro was an incredible performance and i think that's he's really gonna ho hopefully push on from there now and you also get a, a lot more respect in the peloton the more you you get results like that and he'll go forward now in the G in the Vuelta de España and hopefully have a great race again and uh and then we'll look forward to the future to see what he can do so what is the rhythm then dan of life on the road uh, like the share in the rooms the recovery um travel what are the enjoyable elements and the elements that are a bit more challenging within the tour yes yeah it's just the long days it's just the the obviously since covid things have changed a little bit but it's um with the lack of access to the fans because we used to get to a, ho a team hotel and you'd have a line of 10 people waiting for autographs and stuff and that that wasn't just for that's for every team it's not just about being in certain teams and that level of having media even being at the dinner table like in the rest same restaurant as you and you just you feel you really felt like you were being watched the whole time whereas now there is a lot more segregation involved as far as teams have separate dining rooms the, like the dining room truck i was always against it but it was actually an incredible benefit because the riders you really kept separate from you kept in this little bubble which obviously that was driven by the necessity of keeping us away from COVID infection. Whereas you really, I really underestimated the, the positive mental effect of being able to just each almost in silence or just with your close group of teammates and that, the bonding effect that that has. And yeah, it's just a lot of the things that go into a grand tour is it is that level of focus that you need to maintain for three weeks. It's you need to really, it even it sounds silly now when I look back, but just just being required to actually go to bed early every day, and and it's just having to go to bed like because you need to, as much sleep as possible to be able to recover for the next day, or just having this level of your your diet is effectively controlled for three and a half weeks, even the time leading up to the race, obviously. But it's you need to tick every little box to to be able to ride general classification in a Grand Tour. And ticking every box for three and a half weeks, it's focusing on every little detail in your life because any mistake can actually, you might, you know, if you don't wash your hands properly, if you don't eat properly, it, it can all add up to a poor performance the next day. And you don't want to sacrifice the months of hard work that have gone into getting you on that start line by making a silly little mistake that then costs you a result. And Obviously, experience counts a lot with that because you understand your body more and what the what your body needs. But that is it is still that that stress. It's a concentration. It's a focus that's twenty four seven over the three weeks of the race, and uh, that that's what takes its toll 
towards the end. And it's the riders that really can stay that, keep that focus the best end up performing because at the end of the day on a one-off race, most like the peloton is incredibly closely matched now. Whereas it's those little details that really add up to making the separating the best riders from the, uh, deciding who wins at the end, at the end of the grand tour. So what are you eating and drinking every day now, Eddie, as you prepare for the tour of Spain? Um, well, at altitude as well, I think, um, a lot of people say you burn a lot more calories at altitude. So I think, yeah, it's basically just trying to fuel enough, um, at here just to get the sessions done properly. So it's a lot of, a lot of rice, um, a lot of pasta, stuff like that, a lot of carbohydrate really. Um, but yeah, I've never been super, super strict in my diet or anything. I've seen a race. It's a bit different. You're a bit dialed in, but, um, yeah, I think up here, just trying to, yeah, get get as much carbohydrate in as possible, just so you can um, push your body day after day and and do do your efforts as best as possible. Um, but yeah, as I said, it's uh, sometimes it it sounds better than it is. You know, you're you're away in a training camp and stuff, but it's um, yeah, you just basically try to tick the boxes, as Dan said, as best as possible, and um, yeah, just dial in on those small things. You're with an Australian team now. I mean, what's the what's the the life like in the team? Uh, is the case that you, you want to be mates with some of the, the the colleagues on your team? You want to have good relationships, or do you need a bit of distance? Um, uh, are there hierarchies in teams? Is it is it something that's easy to navigate? Yeah, I mean, I think the team I'm with now, Jake Alula, um, they've been around the peloton for yeah. 12, 13 years. So um, I think it's a team where a lot of riders really want to be part of, actually. It's, it's known for um, a nice, relaxed atmosphere, um, just having a good vibe around the place. Um, the riders are all really good guys. Um, obviously, there's that um, Aussie mentality there, Aussie team. And um, yeah, it's it's a it's really nice place to be. Um, as I said, I've, I've been in EOS for four years. That was, um, it's different. Obviously, everyone knows in EOS how they dial in on everything. Um, but it's uh, coming to Jake, I've just been refreshing, I think is the best word to use. Um, I just feel a bit more myself here. Um, and then the guys, say, for instance, in the Giro, you start to move well in a race, and the guys, the staff, and everything, they really buy into it and they really start to get behind you. And um, yeah, it's kind of like you're basically a family for three weeks there. And um, yeah, everyone's doing everything they can over that three weeks to do the best best they can for you and um it's uh it's it's a really it's a really nice atmosphere to be in shane you've been uh, writing about cycling for a long time so how has the game changed on a pro level uh over the time you've been doing it to uh where we are now in 2023 yeah i was thinking about that and one of the biggest changes um when you, when i went to the tour the first tour i went to as a journalist was 98 so it's a long time ago and you had um uh, the riders didn't have the same kind of uh, team buses that they have uh, that they spend a lot of time in before the start. They'd be air conditioned. They'd be quite, you know, obviously a bit of privacy. And but back in those days, there was the, the village du bar where people, the riders would all go sit down, have a coffee. Um, there would be people walking around. They'd be going in and out of where the fans are, etc. You know, on the way to that. Um, and I think that's still an option, but it seems to happen less. Um, you know the 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 riders seem to and and COVID will obviously be part of that, but the riders seem to be a little bit more separated from the public and um, from 
I suppose uh, just that village de Parra, it's it's, uh, it's it's full of tour staff, full of journalists, etc. So there's, there's that remove, um, and I can understand because obviously you want to decrease dis- decrease the stress as much as possible. So I suppose staying in that bubble uh, will help with that, and certainly it'll help in this time of COVID uh, as well. So I think that's one of the biggest changes. Um, and I just suppose the the internet. I mean, before it was it was more difficult to file copy. You know, when you're writing stories and to send stuff uh, was uh, was was more difficult. And now you can do it on the road. You know, you'd be sitting in the car typing away. So I suppose it makes for a more intense day. Um, and Dan was talking about the the intensity of the tour, and it's the same for those working on the race as well. You get to the point where you have no idea what day of the week it is. Um, where time seems to go more slowly because so much more is being crammed into a day. And it is, it's quite a unique experience. Yeah. I'm wondering um, how Dan and Eddie and I'm sure the Lancer deal with the skepticism that can, you know, is a legacy issue around the Tour de France and, and pro cycling, but given the the work I hear they're putting into a chain, I've got to admit personally for a while, I was switched off for this thing. I saw the Vecina affair, the EPO issues, Lance Armstrong, Alberto Contador, I was kind of thinking to myself as just a sports fan and not a cyclist that this thing is tainted. It's got no credibility. So it's important that cycling has cleaned up its act. Do you feel it has? Yeah, I think so. I think things, um, you know, you can see riders that that you believe are clean are doing well. Uh, and that's a good sign. I think before with EPO and, and when things were in the height of the Festina Fair and the Lance Armstrong years, I think it was much more difficult to, to compete. Um, so I think, you know, all indications are that things are better than before uh, and certainly I think out of all the scandal uh, cycling did do a lot of efforts to clean things up there was a whole lot more testing than in most other sports there was more advanced testing uh, teams are paying into an anti-doping fund so they're actually financing the, the anti-doping tests um, so I think because cycling went through all it went through there were a lot of steps taken at the time which which over time helped things to be a bit better Probably a lot better. Yeah, Dan, we see in all sports uh, the advances in in physiology and technology in, in sports science, uh, marginal gains, as they call it. So, for example, tennis players are playing to their mid-30s. Novak Djokovic is 36. Football players, Lionel Messi, Luka Modric playing to their mid-30s. Amateur hurlers are physical specimens. So what like financial, technological, uh, aerodynamic aids have helped uh, cyclists uh, compete now so that some of them don't have to resort to artificial means of uh, enhancing their performance. Uh, I think it's not it's not necessarily about the technological advancements that have stopped people from doing from cheating. It's more about the fact it's a it was a massive cultural change that was spawned out of the problems that cycling had because you have to remember that a lot of a lot of the guys who are racing now, I'm sure. Eddie, myself included, we like I lived through the 1998 the uh, Festina affair. Then the Puerto affair was probably when Eddie was uh, was just starting out, and we kind of grew up as kids watching cyclists getting led away in handcuffs. And it was like, you know, you, you kind of stepped into a sport knowing that wow, that's that's obviously really bad. It's really wrong to cheat. And I think that's where the big it's more of a cultural change rather than the the the, the advancements in technology that's like means that people don't have to cheat. Cause I think mean, it's essentially it's human. It like we see people cheating in all elements of life. So it's sport is no different. Sport is a, as a, as a general thing, there's, you're always going to find cheats. I think that cycling is just 
obviously it crashed down a lot harder than most other sports. But yeah, I mean, there's technological, I think, because I, born out of that, people, cycling has really searched through marginal gains to try and get an advantage in any way, poss- any way possible. And yeah, it's quite funny because I have a collection of bikes from my career in my garage. And there is a huge, from the bike that I rode in 2008 compared to the right bike I rode in maybe like 2017, there isn't a whole lot of difference. It looks, it's still very similar. But then from 2017 until 2021, it's night and day. And it's it's almost become Formula One as far as the, the advancements in technological, like in the way the bike rides, the disc brakes, electronic shifting, like the aerodynamics of the bike, it all became incredibly more, yeah, efficient. And that's why we're seeing such high speeds in the peloton now as well. And obviously then you add that into the sports science effect, how nutrition we're learning about how the body works all the time. And that all, that all comes up back to the data-driven world that we're in there. We have a lot more understanding and ability to, to really analyze what, what's, what our body needs to perform at the best of its ability and why. And that's, that's where the sport's going now. And even small things like, cooling like i saw watching the formula one a few weeks back all the drivers are now wearing ice vests before the start to keep their core temperature down whereas like cycling's been doing that for 10 years now you know it's funny how even sports are copying cycling in that respect that is wait wait a minute there's there are obviously ways that cycling has really pushed the boundaries of sports science and then now it's been followed by other sports you made it clear in your book uh chasing the panda that um you know, you were, you were completely opposed to the culture of doping and, and you never doped. In 2023, how clean do you think pro cycling is now, Dan? It's, I believe it's clean, but it's it's, it's impossible to know because it's the, only, the only guys who know are the guys themselves, you know, and the only thing, like the, what we have to look at is cycling is probably the, 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 the cyclists are the athletes that get tested the most each in any of any sport. And the fact is we're not seeing the level of like there's no nobody's getting caught you know so that we have to believe in the process that it's working the the that it is there is little but then it then it also does come back to this philosophical question as far as like the definition of doping at the end of the day i mean it's not is doping taking something take, taking something to gain an advantage unfairly, or is it taking something that's banned? And that that's why I'm not saying there's anything going on. I'm just saying it's it's a case of no nobody's testing positive, nobody's, you know. But it's uh there is an interesting like bit question there. It's like when, when a sport is pushing the boundaries of everything, like how how far it, where is the gray area? But I think it's that's that's opening a whole other kind of world, you know. So it's uh, but yeah, I mean, as far as I'm aware, like I'm concerned, I think I see a sport where it's everybody's pushing the boundaries in everywhere, every way possible at the moment to to look after the health of the riders as well, and that's the most important thing. Uh, Eddie, is it hard to deal with the skepticism around doping and the um, the image that has kind of clouded the Tour de France for quite a long time and the Grand Tours? when you're dying of a mountain and you're pushing yourself to a physical limit in one of the hardest sports physically there is. Yeah, but I think it's good. Oh, sorry. (laughs) Um, No, I think it's, if you start thinking like that in the middle of a race, you're, 
yeah, you're just kind of putting yourself out the back straight away, you know. Um, cycling, um, the amount, I actually don't think people realise the amount we do get tested um, compared to other sports. Um, even, for instance, in the Giro, um, when I started to go well there, um, I think it was, I got tested seven times in 12 days in the Giro just because, yeah, as I said, I probably had a bad start to the season. I started to go well and then all of a sudden they're like, oh, let's, we'll start testing this guy, you know, and literally blood and urine seven times in 12 days, you know. Um, so I think, and that's in, that's just in a three week period um, as well in one race. Uh, and yeah, I'm, so I just, I yeah, it's funny because the amount we do get tested is, crazy compared to other sports but yeah um obviously cycling has a bad history kind of that 20 years ago or whatever but um i genuinely do believe it's it's a clean sport now um as dan said there's always going to be guys that um that cheat but yeah they're the only people that know that is themselves but um yeah as i said all you can do is just believe in the sport we are do what we can clean and um yeah just get on with it really you know as I said if you start thinking about it too much you're never going to be going to be able to perform great if you keep thinking oh that guy he must be doing something or something like that it's you can't think like that you just have to go and do the best you can and um, yeah just see what you have on the day whenever you race yeah because it would drive you mad otherwise wouldn't it Eddie if you if you're clean and, and you think well if you're questioning well is that guy is he is he is he above boards then you've got to go nuts yeah, you can't. As I said, it's yeah, you go nuts anyway trying to figure out, you know, how am I so far behind? But um, you can't think that in the moment because the minute you start thinking that in the moment, you're going to be beat straight away. You know, um, as I said, um, we all we all get tested an incredible amount, and um, we just have to take all the boxes like we were saying earlier in training and just go to a race and perform the best we can. And if that's coming in first or it's coming in fifth place and you're behind, that's just um that's just something you have to deal with and, and take a good look at it and see if you can improve on that, you know, but as I said, the sport has cleaned up immensely. Um, I think in the last 20 years, um, for sure, as I keep saying, cycling is the most tested sport in the world, given the history, I guess, but yeah, it's um, certainly, certainly a clean sport in my eyes. Uh, Shane, just before we go to the break, I see uh, Netflix have got a in on the act after the whole Formula One tennis golf with this Unchained series. And cycling can't really afford any more PR disasters if it's going to be brought to Netflix and the huge amount of people, especially young people, that were going to see this stuff. Yeah, um, yeah, that's true. And and I think this hopefully the sport, everybody in the sport realizes that. And I think that message did come across when there were scandals. Um, you would, in the wake of a scandal, you would have riders and teams speaking out about um, things needing to change. They saw the bigger picture. Now, I think some of that was. You know, you had some writers speaking out that that subsequently did test positive themselves. So some of it was was PR management, etc. That they would, uh, but I think a lot of it was genuine, where there was a realization. Okay, you know, we're we're destroying the sport. Um, sponsors were walking away. It was making it, you know, really, really, really difficult for the sport to survive. And I think that um, helped bring about change um, because the sport was cannibalizing itself. Um, so. Yeah, um, and and I think the Netflix series is very good, and there's one planned in Mark Cavendish actually as well that's coming out in August. Um, uh, also, so I think that's all very positive, and I just hope that people, the teams, see the bigger picture that that the sport is 
in a much better place and needs to stay in that better place. We're speaking to Shane Stokes, uh, Irish cycling rider and regular contributor to the Irish Times. Eddie Dunbar, who was seventh at the Giro d'Italia this year, Irish cyclist. And Dan Martin, retired Irish cyclist now, who won uh, two stages on the Tour de France on our Cycling Saturday panel. And we're back after this. And you're welcome back to Off the Ball Saturday here on News Talk. John Duggan with you through to five. This is part two of the Saturday panel in partnership with Electrocell, an effective three-in-one oral hydration solution. Feel hydrated, stay recharged with Electrocell, food supplements not to be used as a substitute for a balanced diet. Always read the label. We're talking cycling with Irish cyclist Eddie Dunbar, who finished seventh at this year's Giro d'Italia, two-time Tour de France stage winner Dan Martin and the Irish cycling rider Shane Stokes regularly appears on the Irish Times. Shane, so talk to us about this year's tour. We've got, it looks to be a battle between Denmark's Jonas Vingago, who won last year, and uh, two-time winner Tade Pogacar. Do we need a rivalry like this in the sport? I, I think it's very good. Uh, it, it was worrying on stage five because uh, Jonas Vingard took a load of time on, on his rivals and looked to be you know, class above everybody else. And I think everybody groaned inwardly thinking that it was going to be a processional race. Um, and the next day, Polkar came back and and took time back from him and has continued to take time back since. And I think that makes a very different dynamic than one guy um, riding away from everybody else. So I think that's been very good for the Tour, that there has been this close competition between those two riders. Um, and depending how things go, I was speaking to Sean Kelly a couple of days ago uh, on how he saw the Tour going. He thinks there's a possibility that Pogacar could weaken. Um, and that was based on Sean's own career where he came back from a collarbone break. He won the Tour of Switzerland um, and then and then wasn't going well in the Tour, started going well and then didn't. And Pogacar's had a very disrupted build-up because of, um, you know, he had a fracture that he that he uh, suffered in Liège, Bastogne-Liège. So it'll be interesting to see if that happens. Uh, at the moment, he's looking like the stronger rider uh, and it is quite fascinating because the, the time gap between them is quite narrow. Um, they're fairly evenly matched, but Hogar has been taking time back. Um, and if he does indeed weaken in the third week, it could make for uh, just, uh, yeah, I think I think there's a lot of racing to be done. And I think it's been very exciting for the race that you have these, these um, two guys very close together. And hopefully one of the riders from behind maybe will will get a bit closer as well and uh, make it a three-way battle. What is it like um, being on a mountain climb, Dan? Is it like a long distance runner? How do you get through the pain barrier? Is there a way of mentally tuning yourself through the pain threshold? I think it's just some something you're accustomed to. It's um, yeah, you, you just you're so focused on what you're doing and being in the race. And a psychologist actually once told me to, if you are having a hard time, don't look down at the wheel in front don't you need to try and just distract your mind from the what's going on and even just look up and look around and look at the people on the side of the road just to because that that one just focusing your mind on something else other than how much it hurts can make all the difference it's a, it's i used to really focus on my breathing just really like almost just put all my mental energy into breathing deeply and then because then you can't you almost forget about how much it's hurting it's just about being in the in the zone and like and just having that concentration to to uh to be there but obviously yeah it's it's not i mean especially when you're doing a longer effort you're you're really not that far from the limit until the very end of the climb so the first half of the climb you'll be really quite in a not comfortable but it is a it, the idea is it it's a, it's a long some of these climbs are 30 45 in the state in the case of color lows 
that we'll see next week it's over an hour long of climbing so it, it it's not like you're sitting at max absolute maximum effort the whole time you are you're in an aerobic state of of effort so you you are able to breathe you're not you're clearing the lactic acid so your legs aren't actually in that much pain what where the pain comes from is the day after day of racing of the, of the fatigue but then again obviously for the for the years and years of training that that also you, it's just something your body becomes becomes accustomed to and yeah, these are the best guys in the world racing as well. So you, you're not, it, it's very much just a case of, yeah, I used to find, as I say, focusing your mind on something else other than how much it's hurting really does help a lot. Eddie, then what was going through your head when you were uh, battling out with Primoz Roglic there in, in the Giro? Is there a way of you kind of thinking about other things or playing a Sunday as well or whatever you were doing uh, rather than the actual bike? <laughs> Yeah, I just try. You just try and switch off, really. Um, but it's funny when when you get into a situation like that, it's um, you're just all you think about really is just getting to the finish line. You kind of forget where you are. Um, well, I do anyway. As in, like in that situation there, you're in the Giro. It was a big GC day, and um, all of a sudden you find yourself chasing two guys, um, Garen Thomas and Almeida, you know, and then you're with Roglic, who's one of the best Grand Tour riders in the last few years. So it's pretty, it's fairly surreal, but at the time you don't realize it at all. You're just thinking, right, how am I, how can I actually get to the two guys in front or um, how can I limit my losses here? Um, but yeah, for me, I always go on the radio, go on the team radio and I just get the, get the DS to just keep talking to me, you know, keep giving me updates, let me know where the guys are behind. Um, are we putting time into them? Are they coming back? Stuff like that, just to um, just to kind of switch a mentality because even if that's 100 metres where they're talking you for, it's still 100 metres less than a climb, which is quite a bit. Um, and then, yeah, there's little things. So what's what's the gradient like in the next K? Um, as I said, I'm, I, I know some guys, they take out the radio and stuff like that. They don't like to hear the managers of the S's, but um, yeah, I'm just someone who likes to... Um, yeah, just get that encouragement and um, keep pushing me to the line. But yeah, that was looking back at it now. It was it was it was crazy experience, I guess. Um, but just at the time, I was completely switched off, just focusing, um, just focusing and getting to the line because we were pushing hard there. We went up that climb very fast. Um, I think that was one of the one of the best days I had in the bike. And um, yeah, it it hurt that's for sure. But um, it was it was worth it in the end. So what happens then after the the race? Is there a lot of monitoring, a lot of tests in terms of your physiology, in terms of how you prepare yourself for the next day? Yeah, so I think it's mainly just getting into routine. Um, obviously, my second Grand Tour, um, so I could, I only had one to go off, but I had a rough idea of um, just being around some pretty good bike riders the last four years and how to how to manage myself. So literally, I'd finish the race, um, go back to the bus, I'd warm down for 15, 20 minutes, get on the bus, have a recovery shake, a um, couple of bags of Haribo, um, then have a shower, and then just literally eat straight away, um, get back to the hotel as quick as possible, whether that's on the team bus or whether you go in the car, because even if it's 20 minutes quicker in the car to get back to the hotel and get a massage, um, it's worth it. So yeah, you get back, massage, go for dinner, um, eat whatever you're supposed to eat there, and uh, then after dinner, I go for physio, um, get some stretching done, um, some manipulation, and yeah, recovery boots about eleven o'clock at night for thirty minutes, and wake up and do it again the next day. So, 
it's crazy really how, how fast the days go after a week when you're in a routine like that. Um, like you don't even know where you are. You know, if someone asked me where I was in Italy, um, come week two, I wouldn't have a clue. Um, so you're just so much focused on every little step you can. And um, yeah, the main thing is controlling everything you can control. Um, like you can control how you race, um, you can control how you eat and you can control how you recover, which are three big elements in, in this sport or in any high performing um, environment. So um, as long as you can do that well, control what you can control, um, the rest will kind of always take care of itself, really. You've won classic stand you've been proud of in Liège and Lombardy, but to win a couple of stages under Tour de France is very special. So maybe talk us through, you know, the closing moments. So was it euphoric? Was it relief? Or was it was there an emotion that was prevalent at the time, or is it just something that comes in and kicks in afterwards? Uh, I, th- I think it's important as all with any race that it's just a race. At the end of the day, you it's you get the same feeling whether you're in the Tour de France or when I was racing as a junior and during the Tour of Ireland. You know, it's it's you've just got a number on your back and you're trying to beat the guys in front of you. And that's, as Eddie was saying, you're not really focusing on who you're trying to beat. You're just trying to beat the guys, who they are. And obviously you know their strengths and weaknesses. So that does help most of the time, as long as you know the guys. But um, but yeah, I mean, it's only when you cross the finish line that you really understand what you've achieved. And later on that day, even, especially when I won the, the first stage in 2013, yeah, I know nothing could have prepared me for the feeling when you cross the finish line and then just getting swamped by yeah, hundreds of journalists at the end of the day. That's that's what makes the Tour de France so much different to every other race on the calendar. It's just the enormity of the circus that surrounds the the event. And then just getting, obviously then you just enter into a completely different whirlwind of not only emotion, but also just getting dragged from one place to the next as you go from press conference to press conference to to anti-doping, to podium, to, yeah, you're getting pulled all all over the place. And eventually you get to get back to your hotel, the solitude of your hotel room where you need to go back and prepare for the next day again, you know? So it's, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's just an incredible journey to be able to, obviously having said that I've won a state of the Tour de France and stuff, you don't, at the time, you never even contemplate what it means because you're so set on recovering for the next day. And that's what your focus, it's almost you don't get the time to enjoy it. And that goes for any race, any stage of any race, despite whatever the results, because as soon as you've crossed that finish line, all you're thinking about is recovering for the next day. And it's, uh, it's, that's the toughest part of being the state, state race. That's why I preferred being a one day racer for the first part of my career, because you really, you were fresh at the start line, gave everything. And then when you finished, you could just go and have a beer and enjoy yourself. Whereas on a stage race, you're just constantly thinking of what's next. Yeah, absolutely. And the planning is really important to that. What about the fans, Dan? And we saw this, uh, Steph Kras of Belgium uh, had to retire from the tour after clashing with the fan. Is that now a, a completely weird hazard to have and in, in you're also another thing to prepare for to look out for? Especially on these, uh, on these stages of the Tour de France with the sprints with the, or just on the flat roads, there's so many people on the side of the road and Obviously, when you're in the peloton, you don't you, you try to ignore it to a certain extent. But I was on the race last week for nine days, and it it was it was incredible the number of people there. And I think the biggest issue in the Tour de France is as well that the majority of people are not actually cyclists or cycling fans. They're something. I think there's some crazy statistic that eighty percent, I think it was eighty percent of the people on the side of the road were actually just there for the publicity caravan. 
to go and get the free hats and goodies and stuff that they're throwing off from the so and that's what drags the people out from their villages and towns and but what that does mean is that they don't understand that you've got a group of 170 cyclists riding at you at 60 kilometers an hour and when you're looking at the, them through a smartphone the lens of a smartphone can trick how far away they are from you and just also the danger involved in that and that's what really does become apparent it's it's about an educational process but there's only so much you can do and there are so many crashes each year that are caused by fans on the side of the road. Maybe not cyclists come into contact with the fans, but all, just the group. Like I crashed in 2018 on stage seven. Or stage seven yeah, I think it was stage seven or stage eight. I crashed heavily because it, just in the middle of the pack, not because somebody hit the, the fans on the side of the road, because there was a movement in the peloton caused by a narrowing of the road by the fans at 60 kilometers an hour and that touch of brakes just caused a chain reaction that ended up with 30 or 40 riders on the floor and i was in the middle of that and it's moments like that that it's that's that's one of the perils of riding the tour de france it's an added challenge that you almost it's something that you need to try and predict that's impossible to predict so it's it that's why there's this that's what causes the extra stress in the peloton because everybody understands that this can happen because there are just the You'll be in the middle of no middle of France, middle of nowhere, and there's the side of the road is just lined with people and the peloton's moving at over sixty kilometers an hour. So any little movement or that's made by the guys in the front of the peloton can cause that chain reaction, which means everybody wants to be right in the front to stay out of trouble. Because obviously the further behind you are, the more exaggerated those movements are, and that's what causes the crashes. Do you have to be fearless, Eddie, about crashing? That is just part of the beast yeah definitely um again it goes back to like in a race if you start thinking about it um yeah it's you'll always just end up going backwards or you'll end up on the brakes and uh something something i suffered with um a couple of years ago um i went through a bad phase of crashing and um yeah i really really affected me mentally and um i struggled a bit in at speed you could say or in the peloton and um it was something i had to actually go and um go and get help with um i did a lot of work with um steve peters uh well-known psychologist and uh he's a consultant well he was a consultant for neos at the time so um yeah i don't know I, I worked with him for like eight or nine months on it and yeah it, it made a massive difference um the main thing is you have to accept there's risk in the sport i mean that's the number one thing if there if you can't accept risk there's yeah, you're not going to be able to push yourself at the top level. But um, yeah, I've done a lot of work with that and managed to program my mind, I suppose you could say. And yeah, just accept that accept that risk and accept that there's going to be fear at the time, but switch off from it when you need to and be safe when you need to too. Yeah, and obviously the nasty concussion a few years ago as well, Eddie. But you feel this work with Steve Peters now has got you in a place where you have got that sorted and now you feel like your best days are ahead of you as a rider. Yeah, definitely. Um, as I said, I think again, going back to the Giro, that was a, at times that was quite a stressful race. Um, just in terms of positioning, I think most races are stressful. Now you see on the TV, how stressful the tour is. Um, but yeah, I just felt in the Giro, I, I just felt like I took an upward step in that sense as well, in terms of positioning and being where I needed to be. And, um, taking calculated 
calculated risks, I think, is the best way of saying it. Um, but it's helped me massively, um, not just as a as a professional sportsman, but on, on everyday life as well, you know, um, just being able to, con- again, going back, control what you can con- control and accepting that some things you can't control. And um, it's, uh, yeah, it's something I, I believe that there was, it's probably had a bigger benefit to me than doing any altitude camps and doing any hard training spins or anything like that. It's certainly improved me in that sense. And I think it's, I think it's becoming more common anyway in cyclists. I think you're hearing of a lot of teams having like a sports psychologist or a psychologist as a consultant. And um, yeah, how you said that again, that's the fine, my fine margins of a high performance sport like that. Um, just getting riders in the right mentality to, be able to push their body every day to be able to take them risks when needed. And um, yeah, it all adds up at the end of the day. Absolutely. And we saw Mark Cavendish uh, crash out, uh, Shane, earlier in the tour. Whether he'll come back, we don't know. Um, Jasper Philipson is the king of the sprinters. He's won four stages. That seems like a lot. Yeah, it really is. Um, Mark Cavendish, I think, has done, I think, six. Mark Cavendish took him one tour and he's taken five. I think the last time he won a space of stages a few years ago, I think it was I think it was four, just going from memory. So you can get that sometimes in the tour that the guy who wins early on uh, gets on a momentum, uh, kind of a confidence, uh, role of confidence, um, and, and that it continues on. And Philipson seems to be surfing that wave at the moment. Um, his lead-out, normal lead-out rider, Matteo van der Poel, was, is unwell in the race and didn't lead him out yesterday, but he was still able to win. So, yeah, that seems to happen, that the guy who wins early on the tour can go on and win most, if not all, of the, of the sprints after that. And what's the health then like Friar cycling at the moment, Shane? Is there a good pathway for the likes of Eddie and Dan to become a pro cyclist if they're good enough? Um, have we got a good infrastructure, a good support base in this country for that to happen? I think the the numbers are, are of of young guys are are relatively low, like junior riders, etc. But there still seems to be some very promising riders coming through. Um, you've got guys at under twenty three level. Uh, like Darren Rafferty and Archie Ryan are really promising. There's some others as well and some others younger than that as well at the junior level. So I wouldn't say there's a huge, um, uh, a massive uh, grassroots level in terms of volume, um, but it seems that the, the guys that are there are developing very well. And some of that is down to them going and racing abroad off their own bat. Um, the Federation at the moment has has very little money so it's been difficult to send teams abroad and hopefully that'll improve i know they're they're looking for commercial sponsors to to help send teams abroad but i think it's been individuals really um i mean of course of course there's help from the clubs and of course there's help from from cycling ireland but i think a lot of the time as well it's been individuals strong-minded individuals who have who have um come through the ranks um so it could improve. I think what will help is there will be a velodrome built, uh, hopefully next year or, or early the year after that. And I think with traffic being quite dangerous, um, certainly around Dublin, um, being able to go to a velodrome and train in a velodrome, you certainly won't have the traffic to, to worry about. And I, hopefully that'll help the grassroots develop. And um, yeah, I think that's where things are at, that you've got probably lower numbers than you'd like in terms in terms of those youth riders, but that there are still very good guys coming through and good women coming through. When I say guys, I'm not excluding the women. There's, In fact, the women's scene is really, really thriving at the moment compared to a few years ago. Um, Megan Armitage will almost certainly uh, ride the women's Tour de France, which will be the first Irish competitor ever. Um, that begins the day the men's tour ends. Um, 
and that's very promising. And you've got a number of other writers that are doing really well uh, in the women's scene as well, which is great to see. Yeah, she's from Offaly, isn't she? And uh, is it, Eddie, a conducive country for cycling? Like it's windy, it's hilly. So you'd like to think at a very base level that we have certain things in our in our landscape that that do aid even just at the very early stages uh, what you're trying to do. Yeah, like I I mean, I, I still go back home quite a bit um, down to Bantir and do a training block there. Um, the roads down there are similar to like Jardins, I say, uh, in Belgium. And um, yeah, there's a mix of everything. If, like if I go back there to train, um, you have flat roads, hilly roads, um, yeah, just fast roads. And as I said, I always make sure when I'm in a big training block, I go back there for at least two weeks just to... Um, just to sharpen up, you could say, because um, it's very easy to get drawn into going uphill all the time, literally climb uphill for an hour, descend for 30 minutes. And um, yeah, it's it's easy just to get caught into that versus now with the way racing's gone, you see it in the Tour de France, it's from kilometre zero, you're on the pedals all day. And yeah, I think that's one of the main reasons I go back home to train is just because you can go out, you can do your four hours, you're on the pedals all day. And um, there's a, for me anyway, it, it seems to work. Uh, I think that's probably because I grew up there and did years of training there. And, um, I just know that that works for, that works very well for me. And, um, yeah, obviously the weather doesn't, doesn't help, but, um, as you said, that, that, uh, that hardens you up as well when you go home, um, living abroad makes you soft. There's always a lot of people <laughs> that say that. And it, it's, I, I heard that, but, it, um, when I was moving abroad and yeah, you don't believe it at the time, but when you, when you do move out, um, it does certainly make you that bit softer, but yeah, it's nice to go home and, uh, remind yourself of where you come from and, um, yeah, you'd be surprised what that triggers inside you as well. Uh, just before we finish up, Dan, what's the future for you then in the sport? Are you going to stay involved in cycling? Are you, you going to have a governance role in the sport perhaps? I've been floating around different, uh, yeah, I've had the I've been fortunate enough to try different roles within the sport the last year or so now, and uh, yeah, so I'm working within the organisation as an ambassador at Tour of Britain, and that was a little bit my that was my role at Tour de France last week. I was working with ASO as an ambassador for the race, just like obviously spending time with VIPs and explaining the race to them. So that was a it was really nice to see that side of the event and be involved in the. Yeah, I was I was one of the guys in the blue shirts, so it was uh it was quite that was really a moment when I saw that wait a minute you're not a cyclist anymore you're the guy in the blue shirt you've seen for so many years so standing standing on the sign on podium so yeah and I've um I'm just in the process of starting like a little holiday riding camp in Andorra to uh to show people the mountains of Andorra where we live as well and obviously experience what Eddie's going through if uh if there's any people out there that actually want to to uh to experience that so yeah that that should be launching the next couple of weeks for for the end of this year and next year so and maybe even like do a little bit of a holiday to come and watch eddie race up the 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 stage three actually finishes in andorra this year of the water hispania so yeah we might do a little bit of an event around that as well so yeah keeping myself busy and working as an ambassador for a few brands and uh yeah just just loving enjoying the sport that's that's given me everything in my life and it's still my passion and your uh, wife, Jess, is an Olympian, uh, was in Rio. So is it true to say that with the great genes you have, Dan, that the kids will be declaring for Ireland? <laughs> well, uh, yeah, we'll see uh, See if they want to actually go down the sporting side or not as well, obviously. But yeah, I mean, obviously it's an option for them and we'll, uh, yeah, we'll see We'll see where it takes them in life. Uh, Shane, who's going to win this Tour de France? Um, I think 
Uh, looking at it now, you'd have to say Pogacar is the favourite. Um, I'm keeping in mind what Sean said. Uh, Sean Kelly said that he could weaken the third week. I think if he doesn't weaken, he's he's looking good because momentum seems to be on his side. But it's such an unpredictable race. You can get guys uh, in stage races going really well early on, early on and then they fade. Uh, and you can have the opposite happening. You can get guys early on that, that don't seem to be doing a whole lot um, and, and go on to win the race. So... I think if I had to bet on two, one or other of them, I would say Pogacar, but uh, but who knows? Yeah, we'll see. It's going to be quite fascinating. And Eddie, lastly, um, what's the expectation around the Tour of Spain? Are you doing a lot of kind of prep around the route? What are your hopes? Yeah, so as Dan said there, third stage finishes in Andorra. I've already done a, a recon of that climb. Um, it's going to be quite an important day. Um, being at altitude as well most of the day so um, it's going to be really important to be switched on that day very early on in the Grand Tour um, don't think it's going to be won on that stage but it certainly could be lost um, but yeah and I think I'll go in with a similar approach to the Giro uh, my preparation is going to be a lot better um, going into the Vuelta than it was into the Giro so I think that's a, that's a positive straight away um, but yeah I, I'm going to ride GC there Um Actually, the plan was always go to the Vuelta and actually pick out a couple of stages and go for them. But um, yeah, after the Giro, we um, we actually said no. We there's maybe a possibility on going for GC there, getting another top ten, and I think yeah, that's going to be the aim going into it, uh, which is a realistic aim, I think. And yeah, basically, I'm just going to do everything I can in the next few weeks to get there in the best shape possible. Go to Tour Poland and kind of start the engine there again and. Uh, yeah, looking. I'm just looking forward to going out there and just getting another Grand Tour on my legs and, yeah, hopefully come out the other side with a, another top 10. And I think if that happens, I think that'd be a, a really successful season given with um how the season started. So, yeah, as I said, it's, it's exciting. Um, it's really um something to look forward to. And, yeah, hopefully I can give the Irish people something to cheer about again for three weeks. Well, best of luck, Eddie. Eddie Dunbar, Dan Marsh and Shane Stokes. We really appreciate your time to give us your insight into cycling over the last hour and on the Tour de France. Thanks so much for speaking to Off the Ball Saturday here on News Talk.